Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm here uh, doing a podcast with Matt at the Spine Farm offices in central London. Are we looking good? We're looking good, mate. Very good. We're rolling. Well, this is it. We're in it. Uh, Dante, pleasure. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a minute, as the kids say. It has. Uh, first of all, airborne update. Oh, airborne. What can you say? What's happening? The They're in Nashville airborne. at the moment. Airborne have gone to Nashville um, to record their new album. And they've been there a couple of weeks now. They've bedded in. Uh, everything's fired up. It's all going incredibly well, which is the good news, as you think it would with Airborne. And I'm going to be heading over there, I really hope, end of the month. Oh, great. So okay. stay tuned. I really, I've really, heard nothing. Um, looking forward to hearing it. I think this is going to be the definitive Airborne musical statement. There you go. I, I really believe that's going to happen. I think everyone's That's re- not just label that. spin either. That no, is your genuine isn't. belief in no, the band. I mean, I've probably not even said this to anybody here, actually. I, I think it is. I think everything everything is pointing. The needles are all pointing in that direction. I think it's the right time for them to do it. They're ready for it. And I think rock music needs it as well. I mean, I wonder, do you, you think we're in, are, are we in a post-ACDC rock world or not? I'm not sure. ACDC making another record? Well, I'm not sure about ACDC specifically, but for me, there seems to be... I had a conversation along these lines with Johnny Doom from Kerrang Radio on the podcast recently, and he was saying that it's good and it's bad, this retro preoccupation in rock at the moment. There is a bit of a throwback 
to the classic stuff yeah. and you see a lot of these bands uh kind of making music within that traditional vein but the point that johnny raised and i'd love to get your thoughts yeah. on it is what does that mean for indeed the future of rock if a lot of what's happening now is going back is that regressive is it, uh, is it meaning well, that music as we know it that's guitar based is stagnant because there's nothing say fresh or progressive it's really interesting coming through point. that's a kind of a different topic but yeah that's, that's a really good point instantly what comes to mind for me um i think well first of all i, I asked you about acdc because i once saw you in person like brian johnson for a whole evening oh. on a tour bus, and i've never forgotten that I think we don't, <laughs> don't do it again we've had it but i remembered it so i thought i always associate you now with that with brian johnson here at acdc i've got the flat cap on ready yeah, you have it's as if i knew that's true. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I actually think with, with, with rock music, you have to be looking forward. But I think because rock is, is a music that is based to some extent on tradition and a certain set of agreed values that we all know and love, you've got to start somewhere with it. And I think we, we can embrace the glory of the past, but you've got to look to the future. And I think that's what Airborne will be doing here is taking what they're known for but putting a very much a fresh spin and a fresh energy on that as well. And, and taking the whole thing forward. I think it's really exciting. And, you know, obviously we now have Greta Van Fleet who are doing very well for young Do you rate them? You know. I really, I, I, you know, I, I, I do. Honestly. I do. Well, I, I do because I actually, um, the manager is, a, is a, a friend of mine. He manages another artist that I work with. So, he so you have to say nice kindly invite him. No, no, no. This, this is this is this is a podcast where I think all bets are off. But cool. he um, he kindly invited me to see them play in London. They did three nights at the Forum. I went to two of those. I was really impressed. I think they're great. They're great musicians. I love some of the material. What was really good about it was there were two great things about. I thought that those nights were one. I was part of an event. And I love being part of an event. It felt special. And there was a mixture of people there. There was people of my age who might well have seen Led Zeppelin or early Rush or whatever. There were young girls there who were going absolutely mad and loving it, who probably weren't aware of the history of what we've just been talking about. Maybe never even heard of Led Zeppelin. I don't know. But Did, it's sexy and it's exciting to, for them. Didn't need to know it. Yeah, they knew what was going on right on that stage at that moment in time. It felt That's special. That's what rock needs exciting. more than anything, yeah, isn't it? it felt like a moment. And we need those moments. So good luck to them. With it. I'm glad they're doing so. And they will open doors. I hope, And I think they could open doors, hopefully, for like a new movement, that's not too grand a word to use, something new and fresh and exciting coming through and giving confidence to people about you don't have to curtail what you do. There was a, a drum solo, a guitar solo. It, wasn't, it, was, it, was, it was embellished, not curtailed. Go for it, but be, be the real deal. Be the whole thing, not part of it. And it, it didn't appear to be contrived for success. It was what it was that was successful because it was so great. I loved it. I thought it was really cool. But I know this is a controversial subject and many will disagree with that. Well, a lot of people accuse them, I think, of being a Led Zeppelin carbon copy, particularly in the vocal department. Um, But again, it's hard, isn't it? Because if that is the benchmark and that is your inspiration and that is the the source from which you're drawing, like with Airborne and ACDC, it's that age-old comparison which is almost hard to, to shake, isn't it? So I think the best thing to do is to unashamedly embrace it. The Struts are another band who I yeah. adore, and they're clearly half Rolling Stones, half Queen. Sure. Uh, obviously, it's their completely own spin, yeah. but you can see those influences, and I think they wear them very proudly. Do you not think that the world in which we know and love has certain kind of landmark events and certain kind of benchmark personalities and figures that you can't get around and nor should we you know there's the sabbaths there's the zeppelins there's the rushes these are iconic artists so you're always going to be referred to in some way i think if you're a young band coming up there'll, there'll be touchstones won't there that you have to you're going to people say well you sell a bit like this a bit like that and you know as an ex-journalist you know i think i am quite probably prone to say 
oh, this sounded like that, or it's a combination of this or, or that or whatever, you know. And, and I guess it's quite exciting to do that because if you come up with two interesting things, that mixture of say, oh, it sounds like Pantera meets Johnny Cash, whatever that book group may be, I want to sign that band. Let's find that band. Jesse Hughes from the Eagles of Death Metal once said to me that rock and roll is like milk, right? There ain't nothing new under the sun, but it's only good if it's fresh. That's very, and it's that idea of taking a little bit of that and a little bit of that and using these two established ingredients to create something original and exciting and hopefully tantalizing. It's interesting. And I, I'm, I'm moving from milk into, into alcohol quickly in the conversation. Let's do it. Because well, the blues drink a choice, isn't it? Whiskey and milk. When, we were talking, when I was talking to Airborne about the campaign for the last record that, that they did with us, we were saying that there are certain values in rock or metal that are classic. And we refer to, oh, you know, a Jack Daniels is classic. How do you better a Jack Daniels? And my answer was, you make it a double. <laughs> there you go. So that was so that there was a touchstone for the last campaign. We'll have a new one for this one, which will be a quadruple. It could well be a quadruple, <laughs> yeah, and no coke. Yeah, and yeah. you you mentioned yeah. a moment ago coming from a journalist background, and that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today. You're a very unique person in the business for me, Dante, in that your background, as you alluded to there, and I'd like to go in on that now, is um, journalistic. Purely, right, to begin with. Um, Purely, yeah. Your break, well, your interest in music, first of all, does that go right back to you as a young kid? Were you always interested in and excited by music you know, for as long as you can in- remember? interesting because I was thinking, I love Radio 4, you know, and I love this Island Disc, but I'm thinking how in God's name would I ever distill my love in music down to eight or nine records? So so where did I, where, where did I enter this, this thing? I would say when I was at school, I had a friend uh, called Mick Hurley, Irish chap with a shock of hair. Good, good man. Um, he was a guy that came into school a lot with, with records under his arm, and we play them in the common room. Proper records as well. We're records. talking. These, yeah, yeah. these were LPs. He came in, um, uh, and Mick was something of a tastemaker, obviously, in, 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 in our sixth form world. And he came in one day with the record that I loved the sleeve of. It was a guy lying on a park bench with kind of skyscrapers above him, and the skyscrapers were turning into animals. And this was this, and, and this, and this was the Raw Scam by Steely Dan, record from the seventies. I guess we're talking about here. And I just thought, this, look, this looks great. And I investigated it. I loved the music. And I kind of jumped in and went and bought that with my own money. The first record I ever bought was this record. And it was good I bought that one because it was the heavier end of what Steve did in their career. It was one of the heavier albums, I think. It wasn't really in the years. It was, no, it was after that. But, and there was quite a lot of guitar on that record. And I realised that the tracks I liked best on that record were the ones where there was most riffing and most guitar playing. So I sensed then I'm probably a rock fan. I admitted it to myself. That's where I'm going to go. So I then went backwards, forwards, so I was into rock and found out about your Purples and your Sabbaths and your Zeppelins. I kind of knew about it, but I wanted to investigate more. So that was my kind of entry point. But I always saw music as being something that I would have as a, as a pastime, a hobby, I guess a lifestyle. But how do you make a living from something that you love so much? And I wasn't sure how to do that. I had no obvious connection through family or friends to the music industry. So I deferred the moment of getting a job, as sometimes we all do in life, and I went... Still doing it, that's why we're sat here today. We are, so thank God. I've never worked a day in my life, thank God. Uh, you always work, it's all you do. Well, I know, but I don't see it as <laughs> It doesn't work. feel like work to it you. It doesn't feel like work to me, but um, I decided I would, I would do a degree in history at the London School of Economics, because I loved history, still do. So I went and did that. Hold that thought yeah. for one second, sure. I'm going to grab myself. Where's my can of ugly gone? Oh, I put it back in the fridge. Oh, did you? Let me grab that out. Right, you we carry on. Our, now, we have our own fridge in the Spine Farm office, and it's mainly full of Sally. It's lacking alcohol, but full of this drink, Ugly. Which, there are um, other drinks available. Uh, apparently so. But I, they're not as good as this. <laughs> you can indulge in, the, in that. So basically, I went to do a history degree at the London School of Economics. And to be honest with you, I found it quite dry. And all I was looking at was who's going to be playing 
who's, who, who's playing at the college? You know, who can I go and see? So after about a year, I just thought, I just, I just can't carry on. I, I just not, it's not what I'm about. Although my, my tutor was David Starkey, which was a, and he was fantastic back then, pre to his television career. He was an entertaining man back then. He was a great guy. Sad to leave David behind, but I just thought, I can't. I can't do this. So, so I, I, I didn't do that. And I thought, I'm going to try and get a job in a record company. So I literally walked around central London, where they were all based in those days, holding a CV in my hand. <laughs> literally. And went, in, and went in and said to the, the girl on reception or the guy on reception, I, I'm whatever, 19 years old, whatever, um, can I have a job working here? And thinking, you know, maybe the chairman's going to resign. He may want me to go and sit in his office for an afternoon. Who knows? And they, they said, yeah, we'll file your CV. We know what that means in life. Um, so my CVs were duly filed and nothing came of it. But I did notice that there was a degree um, that I could do in media studies at the Polytechnic of Central London. I think there's a lot of these courses now, but it was rare to find one back then that did TV and radio and journalism. So I thought, well, if I can't get a job in music, maybe I can do something that's more creative as a, as, as a studying kind of exercise. So I had my A-levels. I was able to transfer to this degree course. And the minute I started there, I knew I was amongst people that I could get on with. My, the people at the college there were talking about music. We started talking about punk because punk was happening at that particular era. Now you're talking my language. I know. And I, you know, and, and I, I met a guy there called, called Pete Locke, uh, who was a huge fan of the jam. That was his favourite band. And so, Pete who and were I, a punk band early on? Who were, first who were couple punk of albums? Band, who, who certainly were. I was seen as such alongside the Clash and the Pistols and the Buscocks. They were seen as one of those kind of bands. So Pete and I, you know, went and bought a jam suit in Carnaby Street and the shoes and started dressing like uh, Paul Weller um, and followed the band around, you know, to their gigs, slept on people's floors to go and see them play. Pete interviewed them for uh, some of his his degree. He managed to get get in touch with Paul and interviewed him for that. And so I just I felt now yeah I felt very comfortable doing that. And the great thing about that that degree course was, in your summer holidays, which as you know as a student can be quite extensive, you could either sit yeah, at home too and, long. I always found well they they can be, and you could you could either sit at home and do nothing, which is tempting, or you could kind of get get a job of some description. So the college said to me, look, if you want to be placed in your holiday. We've got connections with this music publishing company who were called Morgan Grampian, I think they were called, who actually had magazines like Record Mirror and Sounds, and they, you'd want to go and work there in your summer holidays. And to me, that was like, well, yeah, because I was a reader of Sounds. I loved that magazine. I was already that buying was it. That was the magazine back then, right? Totally. I mean, I, I, I bought them all as a test, hated the enemy, couldn't get on with that at all. I was right about that. Um, um, but that was that magazine spoke to me and there was one guy on it called Jeff Barton who wrote mainly about heavy metal whose his taste and mine were were almost the same so whenever Jeff reviewed a record and gave it five stars then it's K's now stars then I went and bought it and I was never disappointed bought the first Van Halen record based on Jeff's recommendation what a what a great recommendation that was but but, but, I bought loads of stuff and it was always always right and I was such a big fan of sounds who were based in Covent Garden I would sometimes go and literally stand outside their building and wait to see some of the journalists walk in and out. I never went and said hello to them, just wanted to be there and see them come and go. It was, you know. So what's interesting there is when many teenagers would have been hanging around the back of venues, <laughs> yeah. waiting for tour buses to pull up to meet the bands, you were doing that, but at uh, Sounds HQ with journalists. They were your rock stars. Yeah. And so when I was said, look, do you want to go and work in this publishing company for your summer holidays? It was like, my God. Don't ask me twice. I'm I'm there. There was a twist to this, unfortunately. That zero I, pay. I well, there was that, that's the other twist. There was actually no money, but I was living in London, so I could accommodate that. 
But the thing was, there was more than one magazine there. They had a magazine called Record Mirror that was a pop magazine, effectively. And there was Sounds, which was more of a rock and punk and reggae magazine. I assumed I'm going on Sounds. No, I was on to Record Mirror, which I, 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 I welcomed, you know. But it was like, this clearly wasn't right for me. I wanted to be on Sounds, you know. So, But I was, we were with Floor Below, I think, in the building. So but, who would Record Mirror have been writing about? All, all, all the big pop bands of, of, of the day, you know. Um, and they, but they did cover some rock. Um, and in fact, I was asked to review the singles, my first task, which I took home all these seven-inch singles and played them at home. And I made Crocus my first single of the week, Bedside Radio. What a great track that is. And what an underrated band. Still going, of course, Crocus, actually. So I was trying, in, I was trying to infiltrate a pop magazine with, with rock. And then happily... Um, I got asked to go to, uh, to, to cover Whitesnake in New York, which was like, really? That was, this is great. I've not been to As America one of your before. first assignments. That really was. And it, I, this I, is the golden age of journalism and, and the music like, industry as a whole, isn't it? Yeah, so this trip was kind of, I was paid to go, and they were touring in America with Jethro Tull. They were playing Madison Square Garden with Jethro Tull, and I was tasked to go and cover this great event. Interviews with the bands or just a review? Into the band, maybe we saw about three gigs. There was Madison Square Garden, maybe two others we went to. But there was another massive bonus in all of this was that the press officer uh, for Whitesnake um, used to go out with Bruce Foxton from The Jam. Right. So when she met me at the train station to get the train to Heathrow, he dropped her off. So I met Bruce Foxton on my way out to New York, as well as going to meet David Coverdale in New York. It was an absolute win. This thing was amazing from beginning to end. And when I got to New York, of course, um, David kind of took me under his wing a bit um, and showed me around, you know, and went to lots of great parties with him. Oh, did you really? Oh, yeah. He, I, he was, yeah, I, I loved David Coverdale. What a, what a great He great was news. recently on. There's a podcast that an American comedian does. Dean yeah. Del Rey is his name. And he just had David on last week. Uh, as a full hour-long chat like what we're doing here. And he just came across David as the most funny, self-deprecating, oh, great guy. Um, just real guy, real character, yeah. down-to-earth, but sharp and witty and fun. Funny, yeah, he called me Inferno almost all the time, I think. <laughs> Possibly still might. Um, and uh, it was a great band to go on the road with. I, I got to see them at Madison Square Garden, got to meet them and obviously Jethro Tull, got to hang out, got to go on a tour bus, got to travel around, met John Lord, Ian Pace... You know, Benny Mars, and it was, it was just a great experience. Of course, I was at, technically at college. This is in my holiday. So when I got back... When so I'm you're a, like the kid from Almost Famous, yeah. really. But I, they don't perceive you as the enemy. They welcome you in. That's what, Yeah, and when I got back, I remember lying on the sofa at home thinking, oh, I'm so depressed. I've just come from New York. I'm, I'm going back to college tomorrow. It's like, but, but, I, but I'm, really making, I'm really doing this as a job. What, do I need to study anymore? I thought, well, I probably should. So I continue with my... With my, with my college degree. And actually, I managed it to persuade some musicians to come down and be filmed by me at college for my, some of my college work. John Cooper Clark came. Really? The Bard of Salford? Fantastic. What a great a Hero guy. of mine. Oh. Still trying to get him on this. Hopefully it'll happen. He was on TV the other night doing a thing, talking about a book about, drug, a, a book about drugs that he managed to discover by an early writer. Really fascinating, actually. Well, he basically um, spent the 80s just on heroin out of work, didn't he? He mentioned, kind of alludes to that in the piece, actually. Um, I'm really pleased that he's having like a... Re- well, for a while now, he's been having this great renaissance in his career because he's such a talent. Oh, and he's obviously now finally been embraced and recognised by the mainstream. And he's obviously on Six Music all the time and these TV shows. And He's amazing. I bought, he's, he's, he's got a new book about his poems out. And yeah, I, bought, yeah. I bought a hardback, I think maybe signed version of that. And there's a really good poem in there called Attack of the 60-Foot Woman. I know it, yeah. You know, and the pun- well, I'm going to say the punchline, which you know already, but it's such, it's such a good piece of writing. And it's, it says something like, 
you know, attack of the six foot woman. How come no one saw her coming? Yeah, it's just, it's just great, <laughs> <laughs> and it's all like that. Yeah, I really recommend that book. It's all like that. It's great. Yeah. So anyway, so I got him to come in. You know, in, in that in that period, and and uh, I got um, oh a band called Lionheart came in who featured Dennis Stratton, ex of Iron Maiden at that point, bass player of Rocky Newton, who's now in Air Race, I think, Ruben Archer from Stampede. Um, so I was trying to work with music even though I was at college. I was trying to get in. And, of course, because I was sort of writing while I was there, when I left college with my degree, this company, Morgan Grammy, said to me, well, look, do you want to come and have a job, you know, working for us? And I said, well, yeah, of course, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I, I want to do it. And, and they, then the other twist here, of course, was that the fact they said, well, that's great, but you've now got to go and become a journalist. So which means you've got to study typing, you've got to study shorthand. We were using typewriters back in, and using shorthand back in this era which I wasn't particularly into, but I thought, well, I'm, I, I want to do the job. So I did that. And I did they pay this. for that course? Or? They, they, they paid you some money for doing that. It was, part of, it was part of your training. So I was a trainee. And What a different age. And without sounding like the two old men, like I feel the same way with radio and broadcasting as writing and journalism. They, these used to be crafts and skills that people developed oh, and yeah. honed. And now it's like anyone can do it. Go ahead, right? Yeah, it's true. There was a, there was there's a training. almost a punk rock democracy thing to that, but then there's also like a, a devaluation of the craft. Yeah, I was, think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, they they made you pay your dues. And in fact, paying your dues also meant not working on the magazine I wanted to work on, which would have been a music magazine. They said, no, 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 you can't do that. You've got to go and learn learn your craft on other magazines. And this meant working on a magazine called Accountants Weekly, <laughs> which was exactly that. Exactly as it says on oh the tin. Oh, my, my God. Uh, and there, but w- there was two, actually, were worse than that. And I mean no disrespect if someone was to working on these magazines. There was one called Tunnels and Tunneling that was about that. <laughs> <laughs> and there was one called Pulse that was the mag of the, the, the medical industry. So I was often having to find photos of people's wounds and put them into the magazine. It was really, it was really depressing. And um, so I thought eventually I just said to the company, I literally cannot, I cannot go on with this anymore. I'm, I'm a lover of music. I'm, I'm a fish out of water here. Please, please, please transfer me to Covent Garden and put me on a music paper. And eventually they relented and said, OK, off you go. You can now become a, a music journalist. So I moved up to, uh, to Covent Garden and I, and I started my music journalism career, I guess, proper. Um, Who were some of the early big interviews that you did? You know, um, Do you remember your first cover feature as well? Oh, it's, I, I think it would have probably been someone like Richie Blackmore. Right. I, I, I love Richie Blackmore. He's so funny and so misunderstood, I feel, as a person. I always found him incredibly entertaining. I went to New York to interview him again. This is becoming a common theme. It did happen more in those days. You were sent places yeah. to do things. Well, he lived outside New York, so it kind of made sense to go. And he, he kept changing his mind at where we were going to meet. So he, I'll come to my house. No, 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 stay here. Because so he was obviously playing mind games with me quite early on this whole escapade. I met Jolene Turner For first. his own enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. And then Richie turned, Richie turned up, and, and but he, he's he's a great guy. I really liked him. In fact, about a year after that, I think he was playing at the, um, the a place called the Michael Sobel Center in in near Finsbury Park. I'm not sure they have venues at gigs there anymore, but it was like a sports hall with a venue attached to it. And I was walking to the gig, and this car pulled up, this Jag pulled up alongside me, and he he puts it out the window saying, "I'll give you a lift." He remembered me from going to New York. Took me to the gig with him. Went to the dressing room, and he said, "He said, I've got to tell you." I'm really quite nervous before I play. So I got to drink this much whiskey. And he put a little line on the bottom of the bottle of whiskey with a pen. And he drank down to that, no further, no less, and just drunk down to that. And then he was ready to go on stage, you know. So, but a what science a, to it. 
there yeah. was an art to it. He had it right down pat. But what a wonderful musician and what a what a fantastic guitar player and really great entertaining guy. Uh, he was always always up for an interesting photograph as well. There's pictures of him in I think stockings and suspenders on the cover of Kerrang. I think back in back in the day, <laughs> Ross Halfin would definitely have taken. Uh, Ross was Ross was close with Richie then as well. Well, Ross has been around for forever, hasn't yeah. he? Um, he's someone I'd really like to get on this oh, show as well because he, he has photographed like every rock and roll band ever that's ever meant anything, hasn't he? Ross from the seventies onwards. I felt lucky because you know Ross was on. Ross was doing this before I was. He was really a big, a big photographer on sounds, and he really was there when color photography started to come in and become a part of music journalism. So Ross was well placed for that. He's a fantastic photographer. Ross has got a reputation for being a bit of a, bit of a bon viveur at times, um, which he, he was. He's great fun to be with. He's a really great guy. But I have to say, if anyone ever took their work seriously, it was Ross. He'd come in with his photographs. We'd go through them together on the light box with an eyepiece looking at them. He really cared about the pictures you used of his. He wanted it to be great, and he, he's never stopped working. That's why he got these pictures in people's toilets and bathrooms, because he was there at three in the morning with the band. He never stopped. He was part of the scene, part of the entourage. And I... I was really, really thrilled that, that Ross and I travelled a lot together back then, you know, covering features. He normally arranged the feature, just said to me, be in Boston on Tuesday and we'll do Aerosmith, you know. What, so he was almost doing like the PR's job as well because there, he was that of, close yeah. with them? Because to be honest with you, we knew, because we were rock fans, we knew a lot about the band. So a lot of our contacts there was with the management directly, not always going through the record company in the UK. Was PRing a thing as much as it is now No, then? it really was. And we got on great with, with all of the PRs. But because we were such a specialist setup and because we had relationships with the artists and the managers, we could often just kind of cut to the chase. For example... Um, he and I said to ourselves one year, why don't we go and spend New Year's Eve with ZZ Top? They do a regular <laughs> little kind of touring thing on New Year's Eve. So we called up, I think it would have been Warners at the time, and said, by the way, give the band a front cover, just send me and Ross out to a few gigs in Tucson, wherever we're going to go, you know, Phoenix, I don't know, wherever we're going to go to, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere around the area of the country. And they said, well, there's no new album coming, so we really can't justify the budget. I understand that entirely now about budgets. Uh, Ross and I said, well, fuck it, you know, um, we'll just pay ourselves and go and do it. It's New Year's Eve, let's treat ourselves and we'll go and hopefully meet a great band, you know, which we both loved. So we got there, we hooked up with the band and their tour manager and we just told him, you know, by the way, this little story. And he said, oh, he said, I didn't know that. He said, but from this point on, you're with us. Whatever you spend this point on, we're, we're covering. So do whatever you want, it's on us. So we thought, Really? He said, yeah, you're with us now, so forget it. Just come with us. So they were amazingly hospitable and really generous, and we got to know Billy and Dusty and Frank uh, then on the road, and and we travelled for many days. And I got to go to South Fork, which I was a fan of Dallas. I got to be photographed outside the, uh, the ranch there, and we saw many great gigs of them on the road. And I just thought it was incredibly generous of them just to embrace us into their entourage. And we did put them on the front cover. And, of course, the next record was Eliminator. We didn't know oh, that it? at the time. Was That's it? the one that was brewing. That was coming. We didn't know that at the time. But wow, what a record that that is. You know, and that was 1983, I think, Eliminator. So it's been around a while, but what a great album. Yeah. And a, a crazy full circle moment in your life must be full of those uh, is obviously now you have Snake Farm, the subsidiary. Yeah. Or would it be called that, a subsidiary? Yeah, it's an, it's, a, it's an imprint within Spine an imprint. Farm, I'd say, yeah. And yeah. you've got Billy Gibbons on that label. We do, and, and he, he just uh, put out his, is it his debut solo album after all these it's years? It's his second one. Second one. Second one, Big Band Blues, and you were part of helping us host a very great night at HMV in London with that. I reminded Billy of that when I went to see them in 82, and he, he said, oh, yeah, he said, Ross reminded me about that. He said, yeah, I do remember that. I, I hope he did. Um, <laughs> but what, well, you know, what a, wasn't, he, wasn't he a great 
a great man. He's old school in the true definition, isn't he? Yeah. In every, every sense, he is an old school, not just legend, but a gentleman. He's got that southern, earthy, genteel quality, hasn't he? Yeah, what what, just what exudes cool? What, what what a thrill! Just 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 being with him, he's so interested in everything. Yeah, if you walk down the street with him, he's just looking at everything, going into shops, buying things, doing this, doing that, and an amazing kind of turn of phrase that's very much kind of Gibbons esque, I think. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know in my uh, in that Kerrang piece I wrote in '82, he, he said to me something like, "Oh, I feel so good, I could be twins." <laughs> I said, "It's just a great, it's just a great Gibbons line." Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Only he could probably come up with something like that. It's really cool, I think. You know. Wish I had more of those for this podcast, really, but I'm trying. Well, yeah. you must have some other great stories. Let's go to uh, something I was reading about. Ozzy Osbourne in Hawaii. Was that an eventful expedition um, I for did you? Go to, I, I did. In fact, what happened with that was, it was Ross and I again, and we went, to, we went to Hawaii with Ozzy Osbourne. We did. And what happened was, we, um, Ozzy's, Ozzy's band were flying with him to Hawaii, and they had some of their girlfriends with them. Because Hawaii is like the kind of last stop where you have a bit of a holiday and play a show at the same time. There's a place called the Neil Blaisdell Arena that most people play. He was playing there, I think. So we said to Sharon, we've got to go on the plane with Ozzy. You know, we, we're coming. And she said, well, we got, then we've got to take these girlfriends off of the flight. Do you really want to do that? And we, we said in that case, in the moment, bravado. Well, yeah, of course, we should, be, we should be with Ozzy. So she very graciously asked these young ladies to get another flight. And then we missed the flight. Oh, my God. Ross and I were in the bar. <laughs> this happened many times. We were in the bar drinking and we just missed the flight. Can you imagine when we turned up? What what reception we got at the other end? I won't go into the details of it, but <laughs> frosty to say the least. Yeah, we were <laughs> reprimanded. Uh, I think it's fair to say, but we got there. We made Hawaii, and obviously it's a great experience. One being in Hawaii, what a, what a great country that is. I've never been. I'd love to. Oh, top a, of the list. Wonderful place to go. Um, great place. And um, is it a country or it's not? It's a state, isn't it? I think it's a state of yes. the USA. Yeah, yeah. So not a country, a state. Okay. Um, but um, it, yeah, I, I loved it there, and um, and we got to see a great a great great show as well. So I did do that, and then. I interviewed uh, Aussie, um, the, me, him, and the vintage bottle of brandy. I seem to recall, which I drank very little of. I do remember that. And so this was in his hell raising party this, years. This, was yeah, it? this was in his hotel room. Hotel room. Um, I think Sharon was gone to bed. She was sleeping right. up there. So we were just talking about you know stuff. You know, this one for quite some time. He was smoking a cigarette, drinking. Eventually, he just shut down <laughs> so i took the cigarette out of his hand and just left him and retired to my room got a great interview rushed back to uh to london stopping off to interview kiss in la on the way back these um, are the days right wow yeah. hawaii via la yeah. having lent Ross all of my money so i couldn't afford a cab to get to the studio to interview kiss that's another story um but got got back got back to london with this great interview with aussie and i wrote it up i was really pleased with it and then um it was seen by the publisher literally before the presses were going to run. And he said, you must be joking. You know, you can't print any of this stuff. It's and I thought, what? It's fantastic copy. It's no, 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 no. You're not, you can't put that in the magazine. So what was his justification and reasoning? Uh, I think it would have been libelous. Right. Probably uh, offensive. Um, I think there was many of them. Probably a long list was, was, I was reminded probably of my, uh, <laughs> of my journalism ethics, wherever they are. Um, and, uh, I had to rewrite it, literally at the printers. The printers were holding the print, the printing press while I was rewriting this piece, you know. What a different 
age it was still for the craft as well, isn't it? Pre-internet, pre-computers. This happened a few times. Down Ten, to the wire, right? Proper barely, journalism, Citizen Kane style. Well, what happened was, you see, what, what it was, it, 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 there was a filtration process, which, which it doesn't exist anymore. That these days, you probably type your copy in and it goes straight to the magazine. It's printed. There's no, you just type it in, you know, because computers are what they are. In those days, we used to do, used to do it as typewritten copy and it would get typeset. So somebody else would type in what you'd already written into a machine that then typeset it. And these people were normally women in their 50s or 60s. And they were, they were quite, they weren't very rock and roll. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, yeah. so they'd be reading, they had to read it to type it. They'd be reading this copy. So often they would say, by the way, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not typesetting that. They like, were censoring it. They were censoring it. And this happened with Ted Nugent many times. They wouldn't type Ted Nugent interviews. Very rarely we got Nugent stuff throughout as, as it was written, sort of thing, you know. And there was one, actually, wow. um, Ted Nugent interview that we, we, we tried to get in. And uh, we insisted they run it. And then mysteriously, part of the feature got obscured by a logo being printed over the copy. Thought, How did that happen? <laughs> well, I think we know how that happened, actually. You know, so, so it's a constant battle, really, for, for journalism, for journalistic freedom, you know, here. Um, but yeah, so, so things had to be toned down a bit. I did a very good Gary Moore interview where, where um, any reference to drugs, they, they turned into a Mars bar. So whenever I mentioned cocaine... It said Mars bar in the piece, and it's ridiculously to read that. It's like, oh yeah, he was doing ten Mars bars a day. It was like really? doing as well. Really? Like, how do you do a how, Mars bar? How do you do a Mars bar? I mean, <laughs> there is a way of doing that. You won't go into that. There is, <laughs> but, but and it was so, so. These things, these anomalies, would happen. Uh, it would put, kind of pop up, you know. Um, but we did our best, and I, and I think that uh, I think that era of the magazine, which would be the eighties, when it was me and it was Malcolm Dome, who was enormously important to the magazine at the time, and and Malcolm's a fantastic guy. Pre-Google, you know, Malcolm was Google. He knew everything about it. You just, you, you just typed in Malcolm, you know, and you got out what you needed to know at the end of it. So Malcolm was kind of, traditionally was on, was on the phone, on two phones and typing at the same time. That was him in the office, you know, talking to managers, talking to artists, phoning, or phoning LA late at night, getting all these great stories for the magazine because we, we saw ourselves as the definitive authoritative voice of rock and metal. So we couldn't get it wrong. You know, I remember we, we sometimes phone up the record company and say, Oh, the album's called this. Is there a comma after that word? Because we couldn't tell otherwise. And they said, yeah. Okay, just checking. You know. So we really took it seriously to try and get our facts completely correct. And I think we largely, I mean, you, we could debate over some of the front cover choices. Prince, I know, is still debated to this day. Grown men wept when that happened. <laughs> uh, but I think we really tried to get it right. And I think some of our front covers, like the first Wasp front cover, effectively put the band on the map. So Kerrang! is and was in a very powerful force in this particular world in which we in which we live were you the first editor you know it's interesting i never actually was the editor of the magazine i I started as only writer so i was called staff writer i then became deputy editor and um and i then jeff barton sort of became the editor i kind of felt um that i probably was the editor i mean i mean respect to jeff who was a big influence in my life but I always felt I kind of did run the magazine and we kind of got on with it, really. And so, yeah, I, I would like to think I was sort of by de facto, perhaps, the editor of Kerrang. But what I years were you there from and until? Well, it would have been from I started issue eight. So we're talking about the very early 80s, I suppose. Um, I think Meatloaf was my first front cover. And I left I left about 87, 88. Definitely saw the first hundred through. We put Motley Crue on the, on the cover, I remember, for the hundredth issue. It was really cool. Um, and they were a big part of uh, Kerrang! Was, was Motley Crue as well. You know, I think putting them on the cover early 
was a big deal for the magazine. Guns N' Roses, we put them on the cover very early. And th this is before people kind of told you. We sort of knew there was a way you could just sense this is going to go off. I don't know how we really sensed that, really, but we just kind of, between us all sitting in an office, we never really had an editorial meeting on Craig, I can ever remember. We just sort of sat around. What, where you sort of had the dartboard and you were like, let's go with this yeah, banner. We yeah, it was just literally, we just kind of knew it was going to be Kiss or Guns N' Roses or Def Leppard. Assumedly back or, then they know. were always huge bands on the cusp of breaking as well. Yeah. Like it was, you know, a new band a week kind of scenario. And you also got a sense, I think, in those days, if you didn't have a major record deal, you probably couldn't break as a new act. It was very hard to do that. So the bands are labelled signed, kind of narrowed the field of choice for us a little bit, made it kind of easier. Much harder now, I think, because it all bets are off in that. It's like a guessing game now, isn't it? You don't it? need a yeah. label now. Crapshoot. It is. So, but then it was almost like these, these bands, you know, they had a deal, they were going to make a great album, so you kind of knew what money was going to be spent. So, so we, we, picked and, we picked and chose as carefully as we could, and I hope we got it right, I think, most of the time. But we also tried to educate and, and bring up all bands people wouldn't necessarily think were going to be relevant to, to perhaps to, to Kerrang!, but I do, but I do think you know. Again, I'm, you know, we we were there early with Venom, who we all absolutely loved. Tell me you about know. your story with Venom in Newcastle. Um, well, what happened? I, <laughs> what happened was um, this is this is this is really early in Kerrang's history. This is this is this is really early eighty stuff. That I, um, I my first ever review for a music magazine was the first Venom album, Welcome to Hell, which I had never heard a record like that, and possibly still haven't. It sounds like a, like a, a magnificently un, un, unmade bed of music. It's brilliant. I mean, it's just so anarchic and chaotic and raw and exciting and punky, you know. And um, so the next step was we must go and interview Venom, you know, and that meant going to Newcastle. Not a glamorous trip. New York was more glamorous, but now we're on a train to Newcastle. Me and a, a photographer called Ray Palmer and um, went up there and the, 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 the label who had signed Venom were called Neat Records, based in Wald's End, and they said, look, you're coming up why don't you interview Raven, who are also signed to the label, who we also loved. So we said, of course, we'll do Raven and Venom. It makes sense for us to do two things. So Ray and I got there. We were met by the drummer in Raven, picked us up and took us to a, a remote moor. <laughs> did photographs. you know that was going to happen? No, no. <laughs> uh, to take photographs of Raven. And I did the interview, I guess, in transit, you know. And then on this remote moor, somehow or other, a message was got to us by a runner who came up and said, by the way, can you just go back to London? Please do not come to the studio. Because Venom are really, really, really upset and they've destroyed the studio. So don't come. It's very bad news. So Ray sensibly said, I'm going back to London. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want any part of that. And I said, well, I've come all this way. I really can't justify going back. I must try. So I went to the studio and I entered sort of the lion's den. And, and they had indeed destroyed the studio. And they were all kind of sitting on the floor looking very menacing. I think Kronos had, he might have some kind of weapon in his hand of some description or other. Um, and, and they were really pissed off, you know. And, and I sort of thought, I, I need to cut through the ice here. I need, to, I need to get into this. And just kind of hung in there really with them and got an amazing interview. I thought they were really interesting to talk to. I think the word black metal could have been mentioned perhaps for the first time in that piece, you know. By yourself? Well, they were talking about the fact, and again, if this is wrong, I apologise. I'm only going back on my own memories, and they are a bloody long time ago. Um, but I remember him saying to me that, that, that heavy metal didn't really sum up what they did. They were beyond heavy metal in terms of being intensity and being dark and powerful. And he mentioned power metal and perhaps black metal, almost like a sort of afraid. We're not heavy metal, we're power metal, but we're venom metal, you know. I think black metal might have been used in the course of that conversation. And... It was amazing. I mean, uh, I, the interview was so good. 
when I got back on the, the milk train back to London, took bloody forever to get back to London, I went to the office, wrote it, and we all loved the piece. And we said, no, well, we've got to get great photographs. So we, we got a guy called Finn Costello, who was known for photographing Kiss and Rush in the 70s, a fantastic photographer. And Venom came to London and did a photo session with Finn, which is still, I think, probably the definitive ever photo session of Venom. They want a kind of a hill of skulls backlit by these car headlights. It's been used a lot for picture discs and things like that, but <clears throat> amazing. I, I, I still work with with uh, with Kronos today. I did, we've done the last three Venom albums through Spine. They've all been great records. I More really love Circle Moments. Oh, I love working it? with Kronos. He's such a he's such an intense, such a passionate, such a great guy, and a really interesting guy to speak to. He's got opinions and views, and we're also talking about a guy here who's invented a whole genre of music in the world in which we both exist, and. He influenced all bands like Metallica or Slayer. You know, they they were they were they were playing below below Venom back in the day. Venom Venom were gods, particularly in Europe. Venom were gods in Europe at that time. You know, well, the Lords of Chaos films just come out, which explores the whole Norwegian black metal yeah, yeah. scene, which obviously went in a very different and yeah, dark. Yeah, Kronos doesn't direction. like to be associated with that. Does he hate that disease? Yeah, because it wasn't. They, they weren't about that. No. They weren't about church burning. It was yeah, a different yeah. thing. They they used the satanic imagery. It fitted what they did so well with the music. You know. And did it so well, I think. And, and you know, and those first three albums, I think, you know, Welcome to Hell, um, Black Metal, What a great album Satan. title as well, Welcome to Hell. Forget about the highway to hell. It's like, <coughs> here we are. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean Venom are, are, are a massive influence on everything, everything that, we, that we do in terms of heavier music. So, so, you know, so, yeah, I was pleased to meet him back in 82 or whenever that was, back, no, before then probably, and thrilled to work with him today. He's a great guy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So as you reach the end of your tenure at Kerrang, what's your next career move? And when do you start toying with the idea of transiting into what you're now in which is the record business side of things well i i i departed kerrang because i just felt i I needed to step up in my career and there was probably more i could do i was offered the job editing metal hammer the metal hammer was run out of germany it's not the same as it is today it's not the same people who run metal hammer today 
So I thought it seemed a good idea on paper to kind of to move. And I took some people from Kerrang with me. Some of my colleagues came, Malcolm being a case in point and many other people. And he's still writing for them today, is he? Uh, again, not the same public, not the same publishers, not right. the same. It just had the same title. Right, right, right. You know? And it was a very unhappy experience for oh, many reasons. Is that why reasons. you're clear to point that out? <laughs> I really am because I, I love Metal Hammer uh, yeah. now. Metal Hammer then was a bad experience for me and for my colleagues because what happened was we realised that we actually couldn't make much difference to the quality of the magazine, which I didn't think was good enough. And when I went to Germany, because I wanted to go to, to, to be part of the With Kerrang, I always went to the printers to oversee the printing of the magazine and the types of things and make sure it was all correct. When I went to Germany, no one spoke English. So I knew if I couldn't speak to anybody, this is an English magazine we're printing, how could I make that magazine correct or even any better? We also started working on very kind of prototypical computers. We'd move from typewriter to computer and they didn't work well we, we lost a lot of copy pretty much all the time we'd have to be, be rewriting features all the time that got lost somewhere in the ether so we I, at one point well, i think we all sat down and we said there's two choices here we we can have no job or this job which is better and we all thought well, actually no jobs probably better so we just we finished the magazine didn't want to leave them in, in the problem we finished the magazine and we all left on the same day and mass we, exodus we, every single person left um and we went and sat in the Columbia Hotel bar to drown our sorrows, thinking we now have no money and no job and possibly no future. Let's have a drink. Uh, <laughs> to uh, the pub. And we, we then thought, well, look, we know everybody, so why don't we sort of you know, speak to people that we know? Because all, all we can do is make a magazine. We are, we are, there was a lot, there was at least 10 people here. All we can do is make a magazine. We have no other skill here at all. Let's make a magazine that we, we want to do, you know. So we thought, we just need someone to fund it. How difficult can that be? You know, people know us, love us, want to help us in theory. So we tried a few routes and we just couldn't get anywhere. I, I was really in despair. And I went to see a friend of mine, a guy called Pete Winkleman, who was working in music at the time. I just said to Pete, Pete, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I feel responsible for what's happened here. I don't know what to do. He said, well, do you need money? I said, probably. He said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you go to a distributor? Say to them, fund me printing a magazine, distribute it, and if it sells enough copies, we'll pay you back out of the proceeds from the, from the first issue, which is a great idea if you sell copies of the first issue. If you didn't, we're bankrupt, and people's houses get repossessed. So we took that punt, and we made a magazine called Roar, which we had to sell some copies we want to pay back the money we invested in it. How many and, copies are you talking to break even? Well, I, th I can't remember the break even thing. I remember sitting in the office with my colleagues and thinking, what, what is happening? Are we going to have a job tomorrow? Or are we going to have a lot of money to people? Exciting or just terrifying? Uh, terrifying, yeah. I would say, actually. Ozzy Osbourne was on the first cover. That was good. Ozzy Gracely was on the first cover for us and helped us. And we sold 60,000 copies of the first issue, which was like... Was that a lot then? or It was enough to have a business. It was, definitely, yeah. yeah. So we knew we were off and running. And, but I think the stress of being independent, we stayed independent for some time was a lot. You're, you're emptying the bin and, and thinking of the heading for the front cover. You're doing every, every single job on anything you, maybe you can do. So eventually we, we had some offers to sell it and eventually we took an offer and we sold the magazine, but only on the basis that every single person kept their job. There was no redundancies. So we, we got a deal for that to happen. We moved on. And I, it was said to me that I had to stay 18 months to make the transition good. My, my assistant stayed as well. But after the 18-month period, and I, I love Raw. It was a great magazine. How just, long did that run? Uh, Raw ran, ran for several years, but, the, but what happened was that the company we sold it to eventually bought Kerrang. And so once they had Kerrang, they then changed Raw to become like a Britpop magazine, which really kind of killed it, I think, to be honest with you. So from metal to Britpop, trying to do it seamlessly. With the same name and the same oh, wow. people. Which, which, yeah. uh, 
So, and yeah. assumedly, everybody just went, "Well, what's going on here?" Well, I'm not going to buy this anymore. It was big at the time, but it was a rock mag. It was a rock magazine. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that. So, so after eighteen months, when it hadn't become the Britpop magazine as yet, it was still the magazine that I knew and loved. I thought I should sort of move on, really, because I, I've I, I, I've made a magazine, I've sold it, I've edited it, I've done it. So I I, w- I went I went to meet with East West Records, who were part of the Warner's Empire, and I met with a guy called Max Hole, who was the managing director of East West Records, and he said to me. Why don't you just come and get involved? You, know, it's, you, you may not like it because you're, you're coming from a journalistic background, but if you want to come and get involved, just take a job. You know, we'll give you a job here. See if you like it. You know, come and get come and get stuck in. Very gracious of Max. I'd never done rental company work before, and it was the other side of the fence in a way for me being a writer. And I, I decided to make the move, so I, I left Raw sadly, moved on, started at East West, and I knew for the minute I got there that I was going to really like it. And Max was a great mentor to me and helped me through. And eventually, you know, after after sort of getting to know the ropes a little bit, what what rock companies really kind of did, how it functioned, he said to me, "Look, you know, you like rock. You should you should do a rock do a rock kind of division. Start this rock division. Well, we can put a lot of stuff through that here. It helps us with our international repertoire." <clears throat> he said, "Think of a title for yourself. What are you going to call yourself? You know." So I thought, "Well, Inferno." Like, I thought <laughs> Inferno. I thought Keeper of the Sacred Flame of Rock. Maybe no one thought that like that. He said, what, he, I said, what about head of rock music? And he said, no, 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 make it head of rock. He thought that was very funny. So I became head of rock at, um, at, at the label and um, did that for, for some time. Um, and then eventually there was a kind of great transition of people moving from Warners to Universal. Max made the move over. and Why was that? I think it was just, just in, in, in one era, start of a new one, really. You know, things happen like that. Um, Max was very is very highly regarded in the industry. It was a great guy, my, my complete mentor. Um, I wouldn't be here without him. And uh, so I came with him to Universal. And uh, when I went to meet with him at Universal, I, I started working at something called International A&R, which essentially means looking around the world and seeing there's a band that's big in this country. Could they be big in that country or that country? What do we do to make that happen? And he said to me, um, is there a band that you particularly like within the roster? And I like Rammstein. I, I knew I knew a little bit. I'd never seen them, but I knew about them. And um, they were going. I used to work with a band called Clawfinger when I was when I was um, working in the in the Warner side of things. And and Clawfinger were friends with Ramstein. And Ramstein were going to come support Clawfinger on a UK tour. So it, I got wind of it that there's this band that might come over here, and I got excited about it. Then what year is this? Oh my God! Or this would be thereabouts. This would be at the beginning of. Um, we're talking sort of the end of the nineties or something like that, I suppose, around that sort of time, you know. Um, so uh, yeah, because the first album I kind of did Ramstein would have been the Mutter album, and that's sort of around two thousand, I, th- I believe. You may need to Google that. As you promised me, you might at some point. We'll check that figure. That, that but later. it's pre two thousand. It's around that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah around that time. Um, and uh, so I, so they, so I, 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 they hadn't put out Mutter yet. It's just pre Mutter was they, and and so I, and he said, okay, well, why don't you go and why don't you go meet them and and talk to them and see whether we can bring them to other uh, bring them to the UK? It might be a good starting point. See what what happens, you know. So they're not known in the UK really at not all. Not really. They've never, they've point. been here once to play a show at the Powerhouse in Islington, and I I don't think it had gone that well. I think they were kind of too big a band to play, and it was quite a small venue. There. I think we've been. There. I no, went no. there once. Away. It was quite small actually, not far from where we're sitting now actually. And I believe they they played a show there. Um, but that was a while before. So anyway, I went. I thought I'll go and meet them and, and have a chat. So I went to Canada. They were, play, were playing in Canada. Two night, they were playing uh, in Montreal and Toronto as part of a Canadian tour. So 
I'll, I'll go to both of those shows and see the show hang out. I remember going to the one first, first in Montreal before the Toronto show. Yeah, Montreal was first. And I remember going into the venue and it was, it was big. And it was packed. And I, th- I thought, this is interesting because I'm now in Canada seeing a German band. And this is, this is rocking, you know. And they, was, they were headlining over Soulfly and Skunk and Nancy, who were both you know, substantial bands, really, you know. And they're singing in German. They're singing and... in German. <laughs> snaps there. They're singing, in, they're singing, <laughs> singing in German. Um, they are very Teutonic. And, and I'd never seen them live before. So I literally couldn't get to a point to see the band. I, and I thought, I've come all this way. I've got to do something. So I, I managed to get sort of round the side of the stage. There was a kind of small balcony overlooking the stage. And Skunk and Nancy were there. So I kind of forced my way in with them and to watch the show. And I remember the also show. Also now on Spine Farm, right? Also, well, or the they, last we, we, record we did, we did a record with them. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So all things come to Spine Farm <laughs> if you wait long enough. It's probably the message of this, I guess. <laughs> so I forced my way to the front of a tiny sort of balcony. And they started. They fired up. And it was, off, it was pounding. And it was great. And it was loud. And it was heavy. And I could hear the vocals. But I couldn't see Till on stage. And I thought, th- have I missed this? What's happening? And then after, halfway through the song... Um, I think they started Will Vautier Das Bet in Flamenze, and I think was the opening track then. Um, he, he, he burst out through the bass drum. His head was behind the, the bass drum. He just came out through, through the drum kit. I thought, what a great opening, what a great idea, just to come through the kit, you know. And, and then, it, then it was fire and brimstone and all, all the way. I mean, it was amazing. So I went back. I Did went, it remind you of Kiss? Um, or is it, it a different thing? It's a diff- they use pyro in a very different way to how Kiss do. I think. I, th- I think with Rammstein, it's. I think it's. It's not the icing on the cake. It's the cake, um, and that makes it much more intrinsic to what the whole the whole thing. Like obviously, Kiss is my. It's one of my all time favorite bands. So nothing against Kiss, but I just feel they use it in a slightly different way. Um, <clears throat> I went to the Toronto show the next day. You know, got to talk to them a little bit, got, and you know, and, and tr- try to try to you know make some kind of rapport. What's your initial impression, and is it intimidating trying to communicate and converse and make a connection with? Is it nine guys? How many guys are in Ramstein? Six. Six guys. Some of them quite big and physically imposing. Yeah. Uh, is it just you on your own as well? Yeah, but the funny thing, well, after after the first show in Montreal, Ramstein tends to like a party after the show, but more like a party where you dance, you know, sort of party. And so they were having like a, 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 a disco is not the right word, but it was there was there was dancing going on, and I I saw Flarker dancing, the keyboard player. So I went up and tried to talk to him while he was dancing. And it was like, it was a very surreal thing. And I said who I was. I've come from London. Then I went to the bar and I met Till, who was having a Jack Daniels at the bar. We had a little conversation. But, the, but, it, it, but I, I don't know what, the, what they thought I was doing there or who I was. And I just thought, I've just got to hang out because, you know, these guys are, you know, they are their own thing. They, they're German speaking. They, they clearly weren't like your typical rock and roll band from London or New York or LA. There was a different vibe back from the beginning. And I guess being from East Berlin, they had that different vibe anyway. So I thought the best thing to do was, 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 was not get in their way, not be a nuisance, shut up and hang out. And that's what I did. So I spent a couple of days just going to radio interviews with them, you know, and they had a translator with them all that time so I could communicate to the translator too. But I remember going to see, see him do an interview in a radio station in Toronto, I think it was. And the and they walked in and the DJ sat them down and said, guys, Germany, you have a lot in common with us in Canada. We both like beer. And I thought, oh, my God. And that's your first question to these guys, intelligent, you know, really, really great band saying, but the message saying something. I thought kind of this, 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 
uh, anyway, so th- they graciously got through this. They dealt with it, did they? They did. And I, I had massive respect for that because it was so shallow, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I, but anyway, so I thought, I'm not going to ask those kind of questions. <laughs> you know, I'm going to learn from that mistake. So I'm going to let, let, let's treat this as an, it's an intelligent, artistic escapade, Ramstrad. It's, it's, it, it's, there's so much weight to it going on. And, and so um, I went to Toronto the next day. We saw that show. And then when I got back to London, I, I just got on the phone to the manager who wasn't actually with them in, on the Canadian days. And I just said, I really think, you know, you've got to come to London and do a show. We've got to try this over here. And I felt there was a, a reticence and a reluctance because of perhaps our history or what happened before or whatever, the language thing maybe. I don't know. Um, but I kept, on at, I kept on at him. I know I bugged him. And I think he eventually said to shut me up, OK, book it, we will come. They were doing a European tour. I think they were going to be in Paris. So they could sort of hop over here and do a show here without, without too much disruption of their schedule. So I, 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 I spoke to Metropolis as a promoter who I knew, a guy called Mags who worked there. We booked the Astoria, our favourite London venue of the time. I never know. got to go there, you oh, know. It's really good. About 2,000 people. Everybody talks about it so fondly. Amazing place. And uh, we didn't know what Ramstrom were really worth at that time in the UK. So we thought that was a good, good, good shout, probably. Booked the, ve- booked the gig. It sold out, which was a fantastic, great. 2,000 tickets sold out. So... I went there on the afternoon of the show just to just to see what, was everything okay, and boy was it not okay. Um, they were involved in a, in a discussion with the guy that ran the venue about whether the show could go on. And what happened, I believe, was that Ramstein, who are very very thorough and have an amazing road crew, who know what they're doing. They had sent through the paperwork and the contract saying they were going to do this. He, I don't believe, had read that or took it seriously. And so when they turned up saying we're now going to do this, he said, "You must be joking. My venue's made of wood." this will burn and they were saying no, no no it won't because we know how we do we, we're ex- we are professional we can do it so this debate was raging from the, the whole day uh, well, could it couldn't it happen you know and the queue was forming outside there was a thousand people outside two thousand people outside Clawfinger don't go on stage doors don't open debate continues eventually i'm i'm asked um talk to these guys and, and make them play the show We've, we, you've got to get the doors open at the gig so this is on you so it's coming on me. And I also had, I had everyone from Universal, the, the, the upper echelons of the company, on the phone saying, we want to come to the show, we want to meet the band, give us a good time to come down. I'm saying, Hank, just don't leave yet. I've got something going don't on Don't leave first. home yet. Get, leave it with me. And, um, and I thought about this. And I said, Actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with the band here. I'm a fan of Rams. I, I don't want to see this without them doing what they want to do. Why, why ask a man to come here and compromise? I don't want that to be part of my relationship with Ramstein. So I said no i i with you you know i'm with the band and and so it didn't happen um the gig didn't happen the gig didn't happen um the the message was sent down to the security to tell people ramstein had refused to play which was completely incorrect ramstein were ready to play really ready to play so i went down with them with a megaphone and started and said to people that's not true what's actually happened is they're ready to go they're not being allowed to play play their show. They 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 don't want you to see to see this unless it's exactly what you paid your money for. And I went back and I said to the guys, I know you don't speak English perfectly. I would come down because so I think if you come down and talk to people man to man, face to face, they'll get it. So they very kindly came down with me and they spoke to fans. And I have to say, some people have flown from Norway and said to me, "Can I get my airfare back?" To which the answer was probably probably not, but. This is what actually happened. And people really understood. It, there, there wasn't any problem. People got it. And we went back to the hotel. 
the mood was low and it was dark and it was depressing and everyone was really upset about it, thinking, oh, God, well, what's happened? But I, I, I said to them, I, I, I hope I said this on the night. I might not have done it. I hope I said to them, this, this, this is done. Come back and do a bigger gig. And so, so my plan was, what we do is we do a bigger venue where the show can clearly go ahead. And we, we, take, we, we put adverts all over London and in the magazine saying, Ramstein, Brixton Academy, whatever date. It was six months later when the show actually happened. Full stage show and make that the thing. So full show as people know they could, you're going to come back and they're going to get the full, the full shebang, bang being the operative word. And so that, that plan happened. So I, I was allowed to do that. And they, uh, we did, Brixton was on sale. It sold out. 5,000 people bought tickets for that show. I went down the day of the show thinking, this is our last shot at this. If this don't happen, these guys probably aren't coming back because I've, you can't keep cancelling shows over here, you know. And they're gracious enough to come and give this another go. Again, all Universal coming, big deal, German ambassador coming. Big pressure on you personally yeah. at this point, right? Yeah, council having to come down, vet the show, obviously. So anyway, this went, it, looked, it, looked, it looked good. The show was going to happen. But the minute that the show started in those days with Flarka walking on stage, across the stage, and he had a little light about his key, which he turned on. And then he played the opening to Meinhetz um, Brent. The minute he did that, it was like, <sighs> thank fuck for that. This is actually going to happen. I believe me and the manager, uh, Emmanuel, at the time, hugged each other spontaneously. I'm not given to that normally, but I believe this happened. We were so relieved this show happened, you know. And it was, it's still one of my favourite ever shows. It was so much emotion and tension tied up with that gig. And um, what a great night. And of course, they came back and did that venue three nights, I think, on the trot, and then moved into the arenas from that point on. So, but that was a turning point. That Brixton show was the turning point, I think. In fact, the story was because if they played the Astoria without the show, I don't, I don't know whether Brixton could have happened. It might have just been the wrong way to start to start their career over here, you know. So, from that point on, it's just been an amazing ride, I think. You know, and I, I do think I remember, I remember thinking when I was in, um, <clears throat> I went to Nottingham with them on a previous UK tour. Um, the, 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 you know, the, when you go to Ramstein gig, there are no spare tickets. These shows sell out way in advance, and I, I had an all-access pass, but I couldn't even get a seat. There was I, so I went, I've got to stand by the side of the stage. Not recommended, but I was going to do attempt that. And when they were playing, I remember I remember standing there with a beer in my hand, and and you know, my ears were absolutely were absolutely ringing and hurting from the intense volume. My eyes were watering from the smoke. My face was burning from the fire and my beer was evaporating from the heat. And I just thought, if God took me now, I'd be quite happy. It was just a great moment. They are a fantastic band. I think early on you showed such integrity and strength of character as well, which is, without sucking up to you, it's quite rare in you know your line of work. A lot of people are interested in the money and the quick fix. They're not necessarily about artistic integrity. And I guess the fact that you showed that solidarity with them uh, at the stake of everything, really, at that stage, probably forged quite a unique and strong bond between you and the band, which obviously still exists to this yeah, day. Really Would that be safe so. to say? I really hope so. We still work together 20 years down the line. I haven't released many albums in 20 years, obviously, with them. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, well, no this one new has. one that's coming out, <laughs> is it the first in 10 years? It's longer? the first one. It's 10 years. 10 years. Uh, since we did Lieber, I did Lieber is for Aladar. In fact, with Lieber is for Aladar, um, I just started work at the Spine Farm UK office at the time. And... Um, uh, yeah, two thousand. Yeah, ten years ago, two thousand nine, whatever. And uh, and I wanted Ramstein to sort of come with me onto Spine Farm, 
And I went to Germany and took them out for a curry and told them, gave them my pitch and my spiel. And they gave me a little round of applause after, after <laughs> I'd done it. And, and I just said to them, I'm, I'm going to go for number one. Whatever we do with you, I don't care if we don't get it, we're going to aim for number one, anything we do. And, and I, think in, I think Rammstein always aimed for number one in terms of ambition, in terms of quality, craftsmanship, integrity, weight. Everything, everything they do, it's, it's another level of what they do. I, I, it reminds me of like an art installation. It's yeah, got yeah, intelligence yeah, yeah. to it. And there's a reason for it to happen. And it's, 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 it's knowing, it's smart, it's really iconic. It plays with their unique story, their unique history. It's like no other band. You can't say to someone, oh, by the way, if you miss Rammstein, go and see them. Who else are you going to go and see? If you miss Rammstein, you've missed it. There's no, there is no, that's going, that, that, you, that might be quite good. There's Rammstein. That, that's the level. So, so I, I'm, yeah, so I'm very proud to be still involved. We are doing the new album with them, which is coming out on May the 17th now. And um, very excited for that. And we just launched the, the first video, which I think is the greatest music video I've, I've ever seen. Well, you just said that to me, and I'm aware that we probably need to wrap in a minute because you've okay. got this meeting. Yeah. You've got to come on another time, Dante, yeah. because we barely well, scratched the surface started. here. We I mean, have. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't <laughs> even got going. You're just getting warmed up, mate. I haven't even got going. Let's, let's finish with you backing up that claim, because you said this is the greatest video ever made, and I was like, whoa, hang on a minute. That's that's a very big statement, and then you've just shown me it, and I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> right, okay, um, yeah. As yeah. you said, from a filmic point of view, if you showed that to a lecture full of film students, a lecture room, sorry, full of film students, they would spend all lesson dissecting that you, you could. and still not even get close to the core of what it's about in a very snapshot uh short space of time give us a an overview of the concept and the execution of this new video for deutschland which is causing you know quite the online stir as they always do yeah especially in today's world as well there i remember i saw an article the other day and it was like oh they've upset people with their use of nazi symbolism it's like what a clickbaity knee-jerk reaction yeah. and that's kind of an indication of today's journalistic world and online community isn't it but we won't go into that let's just go into this as a statement and a, a work of art work of art's a really good starting point because i think what they because the song's called deutschland and they are from east berlin as we know well documented um what they've chosen to do is kind of is kind of uh, is, is a journey th through their own culture through their, their own history and I guess they've picked on certain moments that they feel are important, iconic, symbolic in, in, in German history and German culture over the years. And they've woven them together in an amazingly, in amazing visual tapestry, which, you know, if you want to unpick it, as you say, you would need, you, you'd have to sit down with somebody who was a student of German history and German culture to answer all the little reference points there, probably. But you can appreciate it on the level of amb ambition. And I think actually bravery as well. It's a brave video. You know, they, they, they're doing things that haven't really been attempted before. It, it, within the musical medium and I think with Rammstein it's true this video as well I really think to say that's a music video it doesn't say what it is you know um it's it, it's it's way above that it is a, it is a work it is a work of art it's a, it's a very filmic piece I think as well and there's so many different different reference points different different touchstones in there different great moments that you can refer to and you can go back and watch again and again and again and think well I've just seen the Hindenburg on flaming I didn't see that the first time around that's really interesting and there's that and there's this and and they aren't they aren't shying away from anything either they're just confronting things um and they're accepting things and they're commenting on things and I think they're commenting on things in a way that's unequivocal so you can look at the video in isolation or bits of it in isolation but you see it as a body of work and it goes for nine minutes that video where they stand is unequivocal the quality is unequivocal 
and 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 I I just think the ambition is unparalleled by a, another actor at the minute wanting to achieve something like that. So as you can tell, you know I do work with them, but I'm also a fan at the same time as well. Hopefully, a professional fan I'd like to get that balance right. But I'm just blown away by by this band that keep coming back after ten years, and I've got bigger in that ten years with no new studio album coming out. I've got bigger in that period of time and can make a piece of work like that that we're now talking about that's been commented on national newspapers that German professors have dissected and explained the history behind it all. One of, that's beyond music. That's another thing entirely. If you go onto Rammstein's website and see what you can buy as a Rammstein fan, again, it touches, it, 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 it touches your life. Rammstein is It's not just here's life. a beer and a wine. It's not. Like every English and American metal band. I think band, if, yeah. if Rammstein accept the fact that if you like them, they are your favourite band by definition, and that's definitely true. I remember going back to that first Brixton show, you know, um, all, all, all those many, many years ago, 20 years ago, um, turning around, I was on the balcony turning around and looking behind me and seeing thousands of people dressed in black singing German lyrics, but they were English or at least not German speaking, and thinking, this is a powerful force. I know people who've learned German so they can become closer to Rammstein, which is a fantastic thing. So it's educational as well. And, um, and I, I just think we, we may not see another band quite like this. It's a unique experience. We should enjoy it while, it, while, while it's here. And boy, is it here. <laughs> Perhaps the world's biggest cult band, would you say? Well, it's an interesting question. Or would you I, even place them as that? I, I wouldn't, actually. You know, and I wouldn't even call them a band. I, I, I always, <laughs> whenever, whenever I write about them, I, I call them a, a collective or yeah, a, co- yeah, yeah. a collective. But I, as uh, you say, but they're unlike anything, aren't they? They're no, untouchable. There's no comparison with what Ram... And they're, 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 they're democratic. It's all agreed by the six of them, which is why things take a while. But when they happen, it's always worth... But you forget, oh, it's been 10 years. You think, at last, there's a new record. I'm ready for a new Rammstein record now. I've had the 10-year build-up. I've had the great DVDs, which are amazing, those DVDs as well. The Live uh, in Paris one by oh, Jonas Ackland. Fantastic. The DVD work is really unparalleled as well. And it's such a great and interesting and unique story coming from the East Berlin side of things how they became the band, what they had to go through to, to be in a band in the first place. Well, the documentary yeah. as well, which you did a fantastic introduction oh, to you. at the screening. Yeah. Uh, Made in America, is it called? Or Rammstein in America? Oh, yeah, America, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And if anybody who is interested in that band hasn't seen that, I definitely recommend checking that out because that explores, doesn't it, as you say, the roots of them, their journey, and their relationship with the Western media and world. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes things people have found offensive Rammstein they don't think are offensive at all. Yeah. People don't always get the fact there's a real sense of humour in what they do. It can be a dark sense of humour, but it's absolutely there. And they're really great people, fun people to hang out with and, uh, and just make this incredible, incredible music like, that, that really touches people in, in a way that it's very hard to think of another, another band that has done that so consistently um, and, and so well, I think, really, and feels so fresh even after a, a period of time, you know, so... So, yeah, so, so we're thrilled. We're thrilled to have the new record coming. Dante, put right. it there, my man. Thanks so much for <laughs> your time. Is that good? We that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I better let you get on and meet, uh, meet your next client. Um, let's do this again, though. Come on and do a part two, and we'll explore well, more, more rock and roll said. tales of the road less travelled. Yes. Um, yeah. And Snake Farm as well, obviously, is something we, oh, need, yeah, to we need to touch, touch on. on very quickly. Have you got any exciting releases in the pipeline for your other label, which is more Americana, roots music, yeah. country, blues? Yeah, we, we do. I mean, we have, we have, we've probably got about 20 artists now operating beneath the, the great Snake Farm banner. And Snake Farm, just I'll make it quick, but I, I should mention, because I can, I can never mention Snake Farm without mentioning the Cadillac 3, because they're the first band, I would say, in the rock stroke country, what I really, really love and got involved with, and they're very good friends to this day. 
without them, I certainly wouldn't be doing this. Uh, they, 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 they really opened this world, I think, to me. And Jaron, who's the singer and guitarist in the band, uh, is the first person I heard play Snake Farm, the song. He played it on a radio show. And Snake Farm is a song by a guy called Ray Wiley Hubbard, a Texan guitar player. Wouldn't have heard that without Jaron. So I have to give kudos uh, to the great man. And, and it's the perfect it. name, isn't it? It's, it's the perfect name. We had the farm. I, just, I did the snake. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Love it. All right, mate. You take care and we'll see yeah. you again soon. Thanks for Thank coming on the show. Much. Loved Cheers. it. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 